Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. I'm Bataba Taba. We've been practically dancing to that. <laughs> you okay? Everything set up? I'm good, Gori. How are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. And it's the first Monday of the month, so it's book choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3. This sunny hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, brings a bag full of the best in fiction and non-fiction. Beverly Rose Muller finds Headcase by Ross Armstrong unforgettable. An absolute one-off, Bev says, smart, cheeky, with the oddest and the most original detective character. John Hanks takes a trip down the River of Gold, narratives and exploration of the great Limpopo by Peter Norton, Mike Gardner and Clive Walker, and finds it much, much more than Kipling's great, grey, green, greasy Limpopo, all set about with fever trees. Philip Todras talks to Sylvia Brundus, who has just published Parading Respectability, the cultural and moral aesthetics of the Christmas band's movement in the Western Cape. Vanessa Levenstein loved Claire Robertson's Under Glass, and do bear in mind that Claire is the winner of the 2014 Sunday Times Fiction Prize. And the good news is that Underglass is one of our prizes today. Melvin Minar talks delightedly to poet Karen Shimka about her inspiring new book, Navigation. And Cindy Moritz much enjoyed the fanciful The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin, where four siblings go to a fortune teller in their childhood and find out the dates they're going to die. How do they choose to live their lives? Do stay with us. There are two 250 Rand Wordsworth books vouchers to be won and a hardback copy of Claire Robertson's Under Glass. So listen up for our easy-peasy competition question. Andrew Marshbanks. Hi there. Well, some fantastic books come out this month, and which is unusual for February. But there you have it. The first thing is there's a bit of sad news. Penny Vincenzi has just died. I'm not sure whether you've all read Penny Vincenzi, but she really is the doyen of huge blockbuster family saga-type novels. She just published a new one called A Question of Trust. She is amazingly readable. She is the get-into-bed-for-the-weekend-type book where you start reading it at the beginning of the weekend, you plow your way through, loving every minute of it, eating chocolates, and you come out at the end of the weekend and you've had a great time reading Penny Vincenzi. I love her stuff. So it's the last Penny Vincenzi called The Question of Trust, and it's 315 rand. Then a rather more harrowing read. It's called White Chrysanthemum. Two sisters, one soldier, no escape. And this is by Mary Lynn Bracht. And this is about a pair of Korean sisters. They are both divers in Korea. They call them in Korea Hain Yeo. 
excuse my Korean pronunciation. <laughs> These are women who make their money. They dive deep and they get pearls and they get oysters, etc., etc., right off the, the bottom of the sea. And the one sister's diving and she sees a soldier coming towards her other sister. And she immediately goes back to the beach and her sister is gone. And it's a story of what happens to these two. One is sold as a prostitute during the war, and the other find, devotes her life to finding it. It's an amazing story, really quite gut-wrenching and, and true. Well worth reading, White Chrysanthemum, and it's by Mary Lynn Bracht, and it's 290 rand. Then right off in the different tact is a, a book by Rose McGowan called Brave. And this is the story of her fight against the Hollywood, let's call it rape culture, culture against women, men using their power to seduce and coerce women into sex, which has culminated in the Harvey Weinstein. She is one of the people behind the whole Hollywood furor and the Me Too movement that is happening at the moment. This really is a very revealing memoir. goes right into what happened to her, how it happened, how she was seduced, how she was coached into being a pawn in the hands of the, the power of Hollywood and how the system works. So it's fascinating reading. It gives you a lot behind the whole Harvey Weinstein thing because it's not just Harvey Weinstein, obviously. There are a lot of men out there who have abused their power and this book takes you right into the seat of it. It's called Brave by Rose McGowan and it's 330 Rand. Then I must just mention... Alexandra Fuller has a new book out. I haven't finished reading it yet, but all of her books are brilliant. This is, again, set, I think it's in South Dakota, and it's about the Sioux Nation, um, two Native American cousins bound by blood and by land. They find themselves at odds as they grapple with the implications of their shared heritage. She writes beautifully. All of her books, including her Zimbabwe books and the Zambian books, are absolute staples of the bookshop. And uh, here is another one for all of her fans. It's called Quiet Until the Thaw by Alexandra Fuller, and it's 280 rand. Then I must just mention a new book that has just come out, The Tattooists of Auschwitz. This is by Heather Morris, 270 rand. It's about... Slovakian Jew who is captive of Auschwitz and his job is to scratch the identity numbers onto the arms of his fellow inmates. For this duty he gets special privileges and you know there's a guilt that goes with those special privileges and he lives with that his whole life. He does survive Auschwitz because of the, the privilege and he, he meets Gita, falls in love with her and with a fierce determination to survive. They survive the war, and then they go to Australia, and they live in Australia. So it's a true story and a very moving story. It's called The Tattooist of Auschwitz, Heather Morris, and it's 270 rand. And the last book I must just mention is called Brutal Legacy, a memoir by Tracy Going. Now, this book, Tracy Going used to be on SABC 2, and she was the one that there were the photos in the papers of her being beaten up by her husband. It was really, really appalling. She has a two-and-a-half-year court battle, an ordeal 
and she is giving the facts behind the story, what happened to her, how she survived, and how she got rid of her husband. That's Brutal Legacy, a memoir by Tracy Going, and it is 225 Rand. Well, lots of stuff there for thought, lots of reading. Cheers, happy reading. And it all sounds lovely. And here's our competition question to win one of two 250 Rand book vouchers from Wordsworth Books or a hardback copy of Claire Robertson's Under Glass. Okay. In which month is the Ides of March? Is it in July? Is it in March? We're waiting for your calls on 021 401 1013. Vanessa Levenstein. What a fascinating book. What a brilliant author. Under Glass by South African author Claire Robertson took me a while to get into, and this was no fault of the authors. Rather, I had to focus and sharpen up. Her writing is not fast food fiction. Set in 1857, a young Englishwoman, her daughter and servant, arrive in what was then Port Natal. The young woman, Mrs. Chetwin, is to join her husband and set up a home. In 1813, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice was published. Both books have at their very heart the theme of entailment, referring here to inheritance of property, which in the absence of a son was entailed on a distant male relative. Mrs. Bennet was desperate to get her daughters married and was the subject of Austen's ridicule. Now, in Faye Weldon's Letters to Alice on first reading Jane Austen, Weldon casts an empathetic light on Mrs. Bennet, a woman whose family's very survival was dependent on her producing a male heir, failing which the girls had to be suitably married off. Claire Robertson tackles the subject in the gritty, harsh landscape of South Africa, far away from the tea parties and balls of Georgian England. The author's formal and corseted writing style matches the period. It is a wonder that a letter designed to carry such meaning should in the end be so ominously vague. The narrative is told in both the third and in the first person. Chetwin, Mrs. Chetwin's husband, sows the land, and Mrs. Chetwin gives birth to a line of four daughters. The birth of her fifth child, Cosmo, creates a mystery cloaked in despair. Parallel to her pregnancies, Mrs. Chetwin cultivates a handful of seeds that she was given by a horticulturist on her arrival in Port Natal. She meticulously details their names and tenders them in her greenhouse. The metaphor of raising life in a glass house is apt. Glass is transparent, fragile, and yet also protective, much like the way Mrs. Chetwin is guarding her family life under a precarious shelter. It's Robertson's subtleties as an author that makes this work quite exceptional. She explores not only gender inequalities, but also the social imbalance, and again in a very subtle way. As readers, we know that Mrs. Chetwin's maidservant, Griffin, and Chetwin's servant, Fuzz, are muted, but nonetheless have their own histories. In 1930, women won the right to vote in South Africa. In 1994, we all know the country had its first democratic elections. However, in 1857, there was no sign of our equalitarian society. 
so Mrs. Chetwin took the law into her own hands to secure the very future of her family. The drought in the Western Cape has necessitated harsh restrictions on the use of municipal water in Cape Town, a massive inconvenience to thousands of residents in suburbia. Now, I'm going to make myself very unpopular by saying that I welcome this because it's a long overdue wake-up call to stop taking the availability and quality of water for granted. South Africa's water resources should be regarded as one of our most prized and critical treasures, but everywhere this irreplaceable asset is being polluted and abused. One partial exception, and I must stress the word partial, is one of Africa's best-known rivers, the mighty Limpopo River. Immortalized by Rudyard Kipling's legendary and embracing phrase, the great grey-green greasy Limpopo River, all set above with fever trees. Now, for the first time, a book has been produced which does justice to the history and extraordinary diversity of Africa's eighth longest river. River of Gold is the title of a superbly illustrated tome, which traces the course of the Limpopo from its source close to Johannesburg, right down to the Indian Ocean in Mozambique. It's a product of many years of study, data gathering and photography, by three quite obviously passionate and enthusiastic authors, namely Peter Norton, Michael Gardner and Clive Walker. For those who have never experienced some of the most breathtaking scenery of the Limpopo, River of Gold provides a compelling justification for adding the river itself and the wildlife and the catchments to your next trip to the bush. History buffs will also really enjoy the book's well-presented summaries and delightful anecdotes of the many people who influenced and were in turn themselves influenced by developments along the course of the river during extremes of drought and damaging floods. Going right back in history to where the Portuguese started to explore the river, they named it Rio do Ouro, the River of Gold, because they believed that it would lead them to the mystical country of King Solomon's mines and untold riches in gold. Had they continued to the source of the river, they might have discovered the extraordinary wealth in the Witwatersrand main reef, where more than 50,000 tons of gold had been mined, more than a third of all the gold production in history. Unfortunately, the growth of mining and exploding urbanization and agricultural development around the headwaters have generated toxic chemicals, sewage and oil, which have already impacted on life downstream, and the golden stream is rapidly degrading. The authors have recognized this, and I hope this book will stimulate mitigating strategies to ensure greatly enhanced water quality and quantity, not just in the Limpopo, but throughout the country. The historian travel writer T.V. Bullpin once described Limpopo as, and I quote, normally a sulking, erratic river, full of sudden violence, wearing itself out in mighty floods and then relapsing from rage to a sullen brooding in the captivity of its banks. End quote. The river of gold is indeed erratic and brooding, but it still has a very attractive character, unlike many other rivers today. Please read this book. The title again, River of Gold, Narratives and Exploration of the Great Limpopo by Peter Norton, Michael Gardner and Clive Walker. John Hanks' great feeling for conservation. Isn't that wonderful? And Philip Todras and Sylvia Brundas. Here's a pre-record. The raiding respectability, the cultural and moral aesthetics of the Christmas bands movement in the Western Cape, South Africa, 
has just been published by Associate Professor Dr. Silver Branders, and it's part of the African Humanities Series. I think just to put into perspective, the African Humanities Series aims to publish works of the highest quality that foreground the best research being done by emerging scholars in the five dated Carnegie countries. Now that's a pretty high standard, Sylvia, and I'm sure it must be pretty hard to actually work through that process in terms of publications. Hi, Phil. Lovely to be here. It was uh, a challenging uh, process, but very exciting. And once you got into this family, they always call it a family of, um, you know, Carnegie scholars and African humanities scholars, it was a very supportive network. So I was very happy to be part of it. Well, I can see that even from the introduction, the foreword, who says Sylvia Brenders begins her book with a remarkable statement. The displaced beat, she writes, of a gumas rhythm, the sonic emblem of the Cape Town and of three of the city's main cultural institutions, the Christmas bands, the Malay choirs and the Klopsa, serves as a poignant metaphor for a community that still bears the scars of apartheid dislocation. Was that really one of the reasons you went forward? And tell us your reasons for looking specifically at the Christmas bands. Well, the Christmas bands is one of three parading practices in the Western Cape, but it's the most marginalized of the three. They're very celebrated and spectacular, what they call disciplines of the minstrel troops or the klopsa, and the Malay choirs, which has got a long history, a sort of written history, written initially by I.D. Duplessy of the old regime. And there was none of that with the Christmas bands. So I decided, you know, I studied in the U.S., but I wanted to come back home and look at something at home to, to sort of work on for my doctoral research. And I thought the Christmas bands would be an ideal topic because they're so hidden. But yet it has such a long history from at the written history. In, in other words, when it was recorded in newspapers. And there's very little of that in the newspapers. In fact, you really have to hunt for it. You can see, you know, Klopser, Minstrels, Malay choirs everywhere. But th there's a very sparse collection of newspaper, not even articles, just little smidgen. Anecdotal evidence. Anecdotal, yeah, of the Christmas bands. But they have been written about since the 1850s. And even within the larger community, Christmas bands was always subsumed under the minstrels and the Malay choirs. So when I was telling friends and colleagues that I was studying the Christmas bands, they'd say, oh, the Klopsa or oh, the Malay choirs. And I would say, no, the Christmas bands, they have their own history, actually. So you really looked so, at a particular identity and gave them that identity. And I think what I'd also like to talk about is how you got personally involved at actual parade yeah. and participation level. Yeah. Please tell us about that. You know, my friend Valmont Lane was... He was the director of the District 6 Museum at the time, and I spoke to him about this research I wanted to do, and he mentioned this one band that was my case study, the St. Joseph's Christmas Bands. And he said, you know, they've got a really wonderful arranger in that band and you know, a real unsung hero. So, I'd, you know, why don't you connect with that band? And ethnomusicology, which is my discipline, is very much like anthropology, where you immerse yourself in the community. You sort of do almost what we can call embedded research. So I approached the what is called the father of the band, Mr. Johannes September, and said to him that I'd like to research the band and I'd like to join the band. But he didn't 
He didn't take this joining the band very seriously, I think. He said, yeah, I know people have done this before. They've come and researched us before, and you know. You know. I think the whole thing, he was sort of skeptical about this whole process. And then he said, come on a Sunday, and we have meetings on Sundays, and you know, come on this Sunday at this time. You know, you can approach the band. Now, we know you've approached them, but what actually involved you actually participating as a woman that yes. whole negotiating that space? Yeah, so when I, I joined the band, they eventually sort of took me seriously and said, okay, yeah, you can join us. There were no women in that band. And I said, I'm a musician. I play a little bit of clarinet. I'm actually a pianist. And they said, sure, you can join us on the parades. And... When I did on the first Christmas Eve, because you parade the whole evening from about 11 o'clock, you know, you go until it was four in the morning. It's such a beautiful practice, actually, you know. And when you walk in the communities, you know, people open up their windows and wave at you because they yell, here's the band coming, you know, so it was so beautiful. But at a couple of these houses that we visited, you know, these women were looking at me, what is going on here? And almost jealously looking at me and saying, how did you get to be in the band? And I said, well, I'm researching the band. But what's marvelous for me is, which comes out in the book, is how much you have also added to the story of the Christmas bands yeah. bringing the feminist approach and that's now <laughs> sort of highly regarded yeah. but I hope that this has tempted people to find out more about an institution which they probably know a bit about or have perceived oh. I know growing up as a kid in Weinberg yeah. you certainly knew all about it and those wonderful parades and the discipline and all of that and I think the important thing which comes through in your book is about adding respectability. Yes. Yeah. So congratulations on a very readable, might be a doctoral thesis, but certainly readable and hugely informative. Thank you. Serenade in blue I'm somewhere in another world Along with you Sharing all the joys we used to know Many moons ago Once again your face comes back to me just like a theme of some forgotten melody in the album of my memory, Serenade in Blue. 
It seems like only yesterday The small cafe near crowded floor And as we dance the night away I hear you say forevermore And then the song became a sign Forevermore we kept goodbye That you remained in my heart So tell me darling Is there still a spark? In the dark serenade Bataba Taba, what was that? That was Cliff Benton singing Serenade in Blue with the Johnny Lee Cooper Orchestra. This uh, the Clell Miller Orchestra directed by Johnny Lee Cooper. Oh, thank <laughs> you. And here again is our competition question. To win one of two 250 Rand book vouchers from Wordsworth Books or a hardback copy of Claire Robertson's Under Glass. In which month is the Ides of March? Is it July? Is it March? Waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. Beverly Ross Muller. Last year I read a pile of thrillers all in a row and now I can't remember a single one. This year I've read one so far and I, I'm sure I will never forget it. It's an absolute one-off, smart, cheeky, with the oddest and most original detective character. Tom Mondrian is a young police community support officer. That really means that he's got no real authority. He's there to provide a perhaps false sense of security to the community and to rat out anyone who's caught being naughty. He also has a bullet in his brain. There was an accident and a shooting, and he miraculously survived these mysterious events, but with a very different set of skills. He can no longer read or recognize faces, but his sense of smell is not only heightened, but also linked to color. Clues at crime scenes sound like music. Now, early on in reading Head Case, I thought of neurologist Oliver Sacks, and especially his wonderful bestseller, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And as it turns out, so did the author of this novel, Ross Armstrong, when he wrote this fascinating detective story, he acknowledges Sachs at the end of the book, which is much informed by Sachs's description of prosopagnosia, face blindness, and synesthesia, seeing color in sounds. Some people are born this way, while others develop it either through injury or illness. Tom the relearned to walk with a dragging limp, and he learns to talk again and is put back onto the police payroll more as a public relation exercise. Look how nicely they treat the otherly abled than because of any real confidence in his abilities. He is teamed up with a strong silent type, Emre Bartu of Turkish origin. They are a bit of an odd couple, but they eventually get along. Yet Tom can't recognize him from one day to the next unless he writes 
taxi down with great difficulty, details that will trigger his feeble memory. In fact, he's not even sure that the two women he's sleeping with are one and the same person from any day to the next. The community in Tottenham is gripped by fear. There are three missing girls, a police force at odds with itself, not to mention possibly involved, and no one expects Tom to do anything much except shut up and walk the cold streets. But Tom has other ideas, many of them, and none of them make any sense to the orthodox ways of police detecting. He has no respect for rules or authority and quite happy to lie and drop others into trouble if it enables him to pursue his weird methodology. He is a difficult friend, yet Emre gradually comes to accept and then trust his bizarre notions. We know from reading Sachs's work that the brain is a remarkably plastic organ. It can in many ways compensate after severe trauma. And if the personality is as strong as Tom's, learn to renegotiate the world on his own terms. And that's not always easy for the individual or for those around them. Ross Armstrong, the author, is a London-based actor who has appeared opposite several of Britain's biggest stars on stage and screen, including Ray Fiennes. And he has also acted in TV series such as Foyle's War, DC Banks and Mr. Selfridge. His previous debut novel, The Watcher, became a top 20 bestseller. Now, if you're not at all interested in different, then perhaps this very unusual psychological detective story isn't for you. But I loved it, and I hope it will become a series. And here's um, a pre-record, Melvin Minow chatting to poet Karen Shimka. I'm particularly honoured to talk for Book Choice to Karim Shimko, who's just had a second book of poetry, Navigate, published by Mojaji Books. Her debut collection, Bear and Breaking, won her the Ingrid Jonker Prize in 2014, so we're talking poetry with provenance. I'm especially pleased to have Karin here as we collaborated on a special art portfolio of etchings with a colleague of mine, Eunice Gestein and we raised funds for the AVA Outreach Program. Karen took up our theme and title to produce a wonderfully imaginative word piece that we included in the portfolio, Burr. Great when different art media marry, I think. Poetry sometimes has a rough time in our contemporary environment, overcrowded as it is with text, images, and yakety yak. But read, navigates delicate, finely crafted poems and indulge in the superpower of words and associations. Karen, you are as skilled as they come. I can't get poems like Myopia, How the Architect Lives, and of course our verb poem, The Why, out of my mind. Call me trapped by word precision. The title of the new collection suggests a journey, but one is struck how personal some of the poems are. I'm thinking of the Myopia and the lovely smoking. How deep are you in that trip of words? I did want to talk about and think about how one navigates life and how you navigate an identity in life and how that identity shifts constantly and how you shift your way through life. There are perhaps people who have a very clear sense of where they're going and who they are, but uh, even at this age, I'm not entirely sure. And I think I'm becoming more comfortable with the fact that I am not one thing, but different things at different times of my life. In order to explore the themes that I had in mind, it suddenly occurred to me that 
I could write or think about my father who is an immigrant so the first part of the book is a lot about there are a lot of poems about my father and while I think they probably reveal something about my relationship with my father that's not really what they're about they're about how one forms the idea of who you think you are based not only on your genetics and where you grew up but where you find yourself later in life so geography has a lot to do with that I love the uh, the navigate title you know it sort of exposes all kinds of routes and directions you can go in but I was particularly struck by the, how you manage to personalize the poems and you know yet broaden the scope of the meaning to readers Yes, you know, this is a struggle one has. As a young poet, your immediate and obvious source is always yourself. One needs to do that. It's part of the process. But, you know, my first collection of poems is very, very personal and very sort of broken, as the uh, title suggests, and very personal. And, uh, and I wanted in some way to try and get some sort of distance from myself. The idea being that one widens the lens so that you're talking about yourself, but not only about yourself. And also, of course, the hope with any writer is that in making something personal, you connect to something personal in other people. And I think it never ceases to surprise me, in fact, that what people find in a poem is not at all what I intended, but they are deeply moved by something that I've written which wasn't necessarily intended to move people in that way. Not that one intends to move, but that's just the way that poetry works. So, yes, it begins with something very personal, but I hope that it's the waves kind of move out and, and embrace more than just me and my personal little existence. Well, it's the magic of words, of course, and sentences and the craft that you put into it, which makes it so wonderful to read. The process of poetry production fascinates me, really. What triggers it? I mean, the first sentence or first words, I mean... There are some interesting triggers. One of them would be, for instance, misheard lyrics. Or, you know, when somebody speaks to you and you mishear them and something sounds odd and unusual, very often those things stick in my head. And then I'll just start with that. Often it is a glimpse of a memory, you know. The one poem that I'm hoping to read today to you is Smoking. When my aunt died a few years ago, I thought about her, as one does, and, I, and there was this, this one incredibly vivid image of her from when I was young. And so I constructed a poem from that image. Sometimes it's from dreams, and sometimes it's just nonsense that comes into your head. Yeah, so one never knows where it comes from. Why don't you read that lovely poem, one of my favorite from the book, please, Cora? Smoking. My aunt's speck of a planet was a square house in a universe of greying winter lawn. When we pulled up in our Sunday station wagon, she was standing in the front garden wearing red stovepipes. A cigarette smoked itself in her right hand. There must also have been oros and beans and sago pudding and chasing around the house with cousins and the allure of Archie comics in a box under a bed. But the best I can remember now is that her Lexington pack matched her trousers and that it pleased me. This is how dead people live on, smiling in a shaft of memory with smoke wreathing their heads, a herald of hindsight. Oh, it visually is so brilliant in words. Thank you very much, Karen. Navigate is published by Mojalji Books.
I don't know why you're just sitting there, Matabatab. I'm sure we could have danced to that. What was it? <laughs> it was uh, Liza, played by the pianist Thomas Reiner. Oh, Thomas Reiner. Yeah. Cindy Moritz. If you knew the day you were going to die, how would you choose to live? This is the opening premise of Chloe Benjamin's second novel, The Immortalists, which tells the story of the four gold siblings whose lives begin on the Lower East Side of New York City. One muggy, endless summer, they decide to visit a mysterious fortune teller on Hester Street who reveals to each of them privately the date of their death. The children at the time are between 7 and 13 years old and what they learn that day affects the way they live out the rest of their lives. There's Varia, the eldest, the conservative Daniel, an aspiring doctor, Clara, the magician, and Simon, who breaks free of what seems to be his fate to do what makes his soul sing. But could he have also led himself to an early death? Who can really know if there's such a thing as fate or destiny? The author explores, through chapters dedicated to each of the four children, each section dated as an indicator of the end of something. Simon, the youngest, is desperate to break free from the stifling way of life their mother Gertie demands of him. Gertie and Saul had been a traditional Jewish couple eking out a living in the rag trade of mid-20th century Manhattan. Gertie's own parents were immigrants having fled persecution in Europe and as such she wants for her own children all the best what she believes she did not have. She left college when she became pregnant and has always felt that she could have taken a different path herself. She's portrayed as demanding but is also a constant in the storyline and comes out as a kind of unsung hero. When Simon runs off with sister Clara to follow his dream in San Francisco of the early 1980s. Is he not doing what Gertie wants of him, to exceed limitations? Would he have run away from home had he not known the date of his death, we wonder? Clara follows a magnetic pull to a life of magic. Her grandmother was similarly inclined to the magical and she holds tightly onto its power. She and her husband Raj have a daughter Ruby and they become performers in Las Vegas. Simon and Clara threw caution to the wind and may have lived their lives to the fullest. The older two siblings, Daniel and Varia, respond differently to their knowledge of fate. Daniel keeps things safe by becoming a military doctor and examines potential candidates for acceptance to the army. He is cautious, marries a Jewish girl and they do not have children. Even so, family remains crucial in his life. Varia, whose life we examine last, and we know is predicted to live longest, plays it safe and contained. But why? Family is also important to her, but it's as if the knowledge they gained as children prevents her from embracing all that family connection has to offer in the fear that it will be taken away. She harnesses uncertainty with science and planning. Living longer does not necessarily make her the happiest of the siblings. But she does come to appreciate the power of words, of storytelling. Author Chloe Benjamin points out that as children, we're more tuned in to the magic and wonder of the world. The gold children were more open to the possibility that the fortune teller's predictions were real. As adults, would they have placed as much stock in the information?
Gertie, towards the end of the book, scoffs at the story of her children's visit to the fortune teller, having lived all her life not knowing. But then she had her own beliefs, religious ones, and the author explores how profound a tool that is for coping with uncertainty. She puts magic and science out there too as coping mechanisms, and one wonders whether there is any significance in which belief system a person chooses.
Jagger, that's by the Glen Miller Orchestra, South Africa, directed by Johnny Cooper. And before that, you heard uh, Stella by Starlight, track five. And track five is the name of the group. <laughs> What's next, Corey? <laughs> okay. And in fact, that's, that's it then. And it was good. It was very good to be with you all. Today's winners, the three, are um, Zarina Abrahams. Uh, Charlotte Honeyball David Eads we're going to ring you directly after this hope to get through to you then it's matinee up next with Johan Gerber and Amanda Burtas Bookkiesa at this same time on Wednesday March 21 thank you to Rick Everett for so kindly compiling the music thank you to Batabataba Khadebi for so cleverly keeping the show on the road and from me, Gory Bose Taylor it's goodbye and good reading It's just Albert's What makes a lady of 80 go out on the loose What does a candor meander in search of a goose What puts the kick in a chicken the magic in June It's just Albert's Listen, listen, there's a lot of libel to be missing. Sing swinging, any old way and any old time. The hurdy-gurdies, the birdies, the cop on the beat, the candy maker, the baker, the man on the street, the city charmer, the farmer, the man on the Book Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FM